So for the sermon, we're picking up where we left off, and just in case you don't remember where we left off, last week we just started a new series uh, in the beginning, and this series is, as you might expect, focused on the book of Genesis, so we're sort of going to be working our way through the book of Genesis, and we just started it last week, so naturally we started at that starting point of scripture, which is the creation story. And so we talked about that, and then today we're going to go really right toward the next story, just moving forward in Genesis, and we're going to be taking a look at the fall. So last week we looked at and we saw the creation account and that God created everything, and he created it all as good and perfect and beautiful, right? Everything's just perfect as it should be. Well, we know with this story sort of how that goes, how that happens, what happens next, and of course it's, it's all corrupted, right? Sin happens, Adam and Eve, they disobey the Lord, sin enters the world, there's all this corruption, all the consequences, and certainly this is a hugely significant story in Scripture, and in fact, really, if you think about it, it lays the groundwork, it sort of establishes, in a sense, the problem that all of the rest of Scripture, if we sort of think of the story of the Bible, the big overarching story of the Bible, right, the rest of it, it's all about solving this problem of sin that happens here in chapter 3. It's all God's uh, redemptive, restorative work that, of course, is in Christ through what he did for us on the cross, through his resurrection, right, redeeming us, saving us from our sin, and ultimately he's going to come back, restore everything, make it all perfect, restore it, as we talked about last week, to the way it was before there was any imperfection, the way it was in the Garden of Eden when everything was perfect. So we're going to take a look at this hugely significant and important story of the fall, how sin entered into the world. Uh, and you can flip open your Bibles if you haven't already, and it's Genesis. It's chapter 3, the whole of chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. And we're going to dive in now. We're going to read it. I'll sort of, we'll work our way through, sort of go through verse by verse by verse. I'll pause at points, interject. We'll sort of do all of the teaching. And then, as we always do, we'll apply what we've learned to our lives. So let's take a look now. Let's dive right in. Genesis chapter 3, starting right there at verse 1. And here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Right here, we're not talking about just any old serpent, right? This isn't just one of, you can imagine, many snakes that were around, right, in the Garden of Eden, in, in the world before the fall. This is, of course, the devil himself. This is Satan. And so what happens? It says, as we read on, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Right, you can already sort of see this sneaky, crafty nature, right? It's Satan. What would we expect from him? Nothing other than that. And he's sort of twisting the truth, right? Well, there's one tree that they're not to eat from, but he doesn't sort of address it that way. He sort of twists the truth, the reality. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? But sort of Eve here, she sort of corrects him, sets the record straight, right? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. I've heard many times, whether it's in sermons or, or elsewhere, oh, you know, well, what's going on here is Eve sort of already twisting what God said because, you know, we sort of back up if we want to to chapter 2. And, well, what was the commandment here regarding uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, it just says that you're not to eat from it. 
right? But she says, and you must not touch it or you will die. And so she's sort of already adding to what God has commanded and sort of twisting this commandment. I would say that's not what's going on. If that were the case, then, then she's already guilty of sin and you don't need for her to reach out and grab the fruit and then go and eat it and, and Adam as well. But I'd say probably what's the case is, you know, prior to this in chapter 2, we sort of get the quick version of the command that God gives, which is basically, oh, don't eat this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here, Eve is stating that, but sort of fleshing out a little bit more all of the details of the command that God gave, which is, oh, and by the way, not only are you not to eat of it, but you must not touch it as well or you will die. And I'd say it makes perfect sense, too, if you think about it. If you're bothering to reach out and touch it, in a sense, probably in your heart, you're already considering, should I eat this fruit or not? I know God doesn't want me to. He told me I'm not to eat this fruit, but let me get a little closer, touch it up close, give it a little look. And in a sense, if you're already at that point in your heart, you're already considering rebellion against God, sinning against Him, which in a sense is already sin itself. If you're bothering even to consider that, then sort of you have already sinned against the Lord. And so I would say that's why God here gives sort of this twofold command in the sense of don't eat it. And by the way, don't even touch it, because if you're even going there and touching it, you're already considering eating it. And so don't even touch it. That's off limits as well. And so I would say Eve isn't making this up and sort of adding to the Lord's command, but she's just sort of fleshing out what is put simply in chapter 2 of Genesis. So, right, reading on, what does the serpent here, what does Satan say? He says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right, and this is just, again, awfully crafty, as it says he is in, in, in verse 1 of this chapter. Awfully sneaky. He takes, in a sense, what is sort of true, right? What does he say here? Right, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If we read on further into this chapter, and we'll get there eventually, that is indeed what happens. They, their eyes are opened, right? And they do now have this knowledge of good and evil. So Satan sort of takes this truth, in a sense, but sort of twists it in the sense of, well, you know, really, God just is concerned that you're going to become great and wonderful just like he is. And so it's sort of this selfish motive. He doesn't want you to be as great and wonderful as he is. And if you eat this fruit, you really will be. So that's why God has made it off limits for you. And so it's in his interest that it's off limits to you, but it's in your interest to go and eat it. So he sort of takes a little bit of truth, but twists it, in fact. And I do want to talk a little bit about this uh, this knowing good and evil, right? This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I would say this is very thoroughly, clearly a testing tree. That's its intent from the get-go, right? God puts it there ultimately to test mankind, and God knows how ultimately it's going to come about, what, you know, what's going to come of it all, and man's going to disobey. But in a sense, whether it had gone one way or the other, and certainly God had ordained for it to go the bad way where we sinned and so forth, and we know how that goes. Uh, but in a sense, either way, it would have been a test for mankind. Either do you pass the test, and, and Satan comes and tempts you, and you say, no, that's off limits. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to be faithful to him, and you pass the test. Or maybe you fail the test, which is indeed what happens here. Uh, and then we have all the consequences of sin, sort of all the curses that, and punishments that flow out of that. But either way, it's a testing tree. And part of the result, again, in a sense, either way, would be an intimate knowledge of good or evil, and both good and evil. And so this would have been the case either way. If they had failed the test, and indeed they did fail the test, well, then there's an intimate knowledge of the evil that they did by disobeying the Lord. 
And so they have a knowledge of that. But at the same time, there's also this intimate knowledge of the good that they should have done, right? Which was, of course, what? Not to eat, to obey the Lord, not to eat this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, on the flip side, if we look at it and say, well, what if they had passed the test with flying colors, right? They said, no, Satan, we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to eat this fruit. We know we're not supposed to. Then again, the same result would have happened. It's not like they only have this knowledge of good and evil if they eat the fruit, but they would have had a knowledge of the good that they, in fact, did by obeying the Lord, if they had obeyed the Lord. And they also would have had this knowledge of the evil that they didn't do if they hadn't eaten the fruit, but of course they could have done in a sense. So either way, there was going to come about this knowledge of good and evil, just they chose for it to come about in the negative way by disobeying the Lord, and then all of the consequences flow out of that. So then reading on, we're at verse 6 here. We'll pick up where we sort of left off. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And I want to talk a little bit about this nakedness and sort of what's going on here. Why does it bother to get mentioned here? Why, you know, before they eat this fruit, they're sort of perfectly content to be naked and go around everywhere naked and no big deal. It's all wonderful and great. And then all of a sudden they eat this fruit and it changes. And now all of a sudden, well, they see their nakedness and there's a sense of shame over it. And there's this feeling of, oh, I got to cover this up. Um, And I would say God establishes this to be the case right after the fall uh, for an intended purpose and it has to do with sort of a deeper spiritual reality of what's going on. It's not just about physical nakedness. There is a physical nakedness and now they sort of realize it and there's the sense of we need to cover it up but, but really God has this happen in this way to point to a deeper reality in a sense a spiritual nakedness right before the fall even if you want to think of them as sort of naked in a spiritual way well they were righteous so if their righteousness is sort of exposed for all to see well that's wonderful and there's nothing wrong with that. But now that there's sin, right, they've disobeyed the Lord, they're sinful, and so in a sense, spiritually, that's sort of what's exposed now. They're sort of naked. There's this sinfulness that's sort of exposed for all to see, and there's this sense of it needs to be covered up. This is wrong. This shouldn't be exposed for all to see, this sinfulness, and it needs to be covered. And of course, ultimately, we know who will deal with our spiritual nakedness and sinfulness. It's Christ, and he, of course, deals with our sin problem and provides a covering or clothing, in a sense, by ultimately going to a cross, making atonement for our sin, and so forth. And we don't know all that. But I want to mention this because it it will ultimately become significant as we move on toward the end of this passage. So you can sort of file that away for now, but we'll pull it back off the bookshelf and, and address it when we get there later in this chapter. So going on, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I sort of want to retranslate this a little bit. I think I've mentioned this in the past. I think we've, we've gone over this passage before, years back. Um, but I would say that the translation here of cool of the day isn't the greatest translation. I think it's sort of translators trying to figure out what seems a little bit bizarre, which is the wind of the day. That's literally what, what's, what's there Um, The wind of the day and sort of what what does that mean? Is this sort of like the breezy part of the day? Um, And so it's a little bit cool. You get some nice cool relief from the heat. And that's sort of speculative. Maybe that's what it is. And so we'll translate it that way. 
Uh, and I understand why it was translated that way years and years and years ago, but there have been more studies on Semitic languages uh, like Hebrew and cognate sort of sister languages, and it turns out that the word day, yom, um, there's another word that's the exact same, yom as well, but it also means storm. And so there's yom that's day and yom that's storm, and suddenly you realize that, oh, wind of the day, that sounds a little bit bizarre, what's going on there, but wind of the storm, that makes an awful lot of sense. And so that's clearly what's going on here, especially if we think of other times where there's a theophany and God sort of shows up on scene. You can think of sort of Mount Sinai and what happens. Whenever God shows up, he shows up in the midst of this storm cloud. That's what happens at Sinai, right? This thick cloud descends upon the mountain and this flashes of lightning, this thunder, right? That, that's what's taking place then. And in a sense, really, that's what's happening here, the exact same thing. And so God is showing up in this thunder cloud, in this, this storm, in the wind of the storm, right? That's what's being said here, not the cool of the day. And in a sense, you might say, well, why does God do that? What's his, why does he sort of show up in this, this big storm? Why is that the way he appears? Well, now this sin, right? God isn't just going to show up face to face in all of his glory with sinful man and consume them in reality is what would take place. So he sort of has to have some sort of barrier, in a sense, or shield them from his, the fullness of his glory. But at the same time, he still wants to reveal his great power and, and awesomeness. And what, what better way to sort of accomplish both of those than to show up in this big thundercloud in a sense. And so that's what's going on here. So God shows up, right? He's walking, right? As he was walking in the garden in the wind of the storm. And of course, now they're, they're terrified. They're terrified because they know they've done wrong. But probably the storm is a little bit terrifying too. And so they hid from the Lord God, it says, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Not that God needs to ask all these questions as though he's, he's, he's perplexed himself. Of course, he knows exactly what's taken place, but wants to, to see how they answer, of course. And, um, so have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God says. The man said, you've got to love the response of the man and the woman. It's sort of, I think of it, you know, I have four kids, of course, and it's sort of like them. You know, someone's in trouble. Someone did something, and the immediate response is like, point the finger at the other one. Oh, he did it. And then the other one's sort of pointing the finger back. No, he did this. That's basically what winds up going on here. So the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Right? And, and gotta love Adam's response. It's sort of like he's gonna point the finger in two directions. First of all, you know, it's the woman, right? Clearly it's not my fault. You know, she gave me the fruit. What was I supposed to do? Surely I just had to eat it. But not only that, right, he sort of says, well, you know, if you don't want to, you know, I'm not to blame, but even God, if you don't want to blame Eve, it's sort of like it's your fault, God, because the woman you put here with me, that's intentionally stated there. It's not like that's just how Adam happens to respond here, but it's sort of like, well, the woman gave me the fruit, and by the way, you're the one who put her here, so you can't blame me. You know, it's really your fault for creating this woman who then caused me to eat this fruit. So he's just pointing the finger in every direction. Right? And then we read on, and, and ultimately the woman sort of does the same thing. Eve does much the same. So, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Right? In a sense, you know, I mean, it's not entirely my fault. Yeah, I guess a little bit of what Adam said is sort of true, but really it's the serpent. You know, he deceived me, so I ate. So, you know, it's not really totally my fault. 
So now, what are the consequences? We sort of get to the fallout of all of this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, right, they're all sort of going to get theirs. They're all going to get their specific punishment, serpent, right, and man and woman. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And really this curse, you know, it's not that it's centrally falling upon snakes. Like, oh, these poor snakes, you know, like it wasn't really their fault. It was just the devil who took the form of the snake. And now the snakes sort of, they get to be the ones punished. But I would say really the reality here is that the serpents now, the snakes in a sense, are serve to represent in a sense um, the evil one, Satan, and also his demons who are sort of a part of all of this with him to be sure. Uh, and so they're sort of symbolic in reality. Now, a question here, you could look at this. I don't think we can say with any certainty, but does this mean that, you know, did snakes actually have legs before this and they walked around and now all of a sudden they have to crawl? I would say probably not th that that's the case. I'd say probably snakes were always just this cool animal that slithered around and, and the way that they um, would smell things is they'd have a forked tongue that would go out and touch the ground and then they'd be able to smell it and that was just a neat way in which God created. But now these are meant, God, those things that were created as wonderful, cool creations are now intended to be representative of sort of the curse that falls not really upon them, but the ones they're representing, which is Satan and his demons. Right? So it's not that, oh, now all of these, these animals, these snakes, they're all punished, but they just serve in a sense as representative of the curse that is now upon the evil one and his demons. So I'd say they probably always slithered about, they probably always ate the dust of the earth, not that they literally ate it, but that's sort of just a figurative way of depicting that. And now this imagery that was just originally a cool way of creating is now representative of sort of the casting down and, and humbling and lowering of Satan and his demons and the judgment and punishment that's upon them. So now, reading on, we're not really done with the serpent yet. So now we're at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, this is the offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right? And certainly this is a reality, but again, this is not fundamentally what, what God's talking about here, but it's a reality if you think of sort of like snake-human interactions. I know there are people out there who might be reptile people and like their snakes and they have a pet snake. But in general, I'd say snakes and people were not besties, really. We don't get along super well. And historically, that's just the reality, you know. Um, and it even speaks of here sort of what can happen between people and snakes, right? A person can crush the head of a snake and kill a snake. But often what happens is it can at times go the other way, right? And the snake can bite the heel, strike the heel of the person. And so this sort of this enmity, right, man and snake will be at odds. But ultimately, it's not really about people and snakes, but pointing to a deeper spiritual reality. And again, snakes here are really just representative of ultimately the devil, his demons. And what's being said here, right, the devil here has this plan, right? Satan has a plan that he wants to, God's created everything great and wonderful and perfect, and he sort of wants to destroy this created order. He wants to destroy man, have man under God's judgment, destroy this wonderful, perfect creation. And basically, the result is, no, you're not going to be successful in what you want to accomplish, Satan, but rather, it's ultimately this offspring of the woman, which is Christ himself, that's what it's pointing to. We sort of get here, even in Genesis, right after the fall has happened, right after the initial sin has taken place, God's already really, in a sense here, proclaiming the gospel and that, hey, he's going to take care of the sin problem. There will be an offspring of this woman, Christ himself, 
who will crush the head of this serpent, Satan, defeat him. He, Satan has this scheme and plan to ruin everything. And God's saying, no, 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 you're not going to be successful. You're going to be crushed. This sin problem will be dealt with through my son, whom I'll send to make atonement for sin. But it will be at cost to him. His heel will still be struck by the serpent, right? He will have to die on a cross to bring this about. And that's what's being spoken of here. And so already... God is already saying, immediately after this sin problem has happened, he's still saying, I'm going to solve it. I'm going to fix it. There is hope. And of course, the rest of Scripture is just God unfolding, the unfolding of that plan of God to redeem, to rescue mankind, and to restore everything to perfection again. But now moving on, God addresses the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. That's not a fun one. I can imagine, but part of the consequences. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, the last part of this, that your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What's being said there? I'd say um, probably the sense in which your desire will be for your husband is stated in the sense that one of the ways in which sin will sort of corrupt things is maybe an inordinate desire for your husband. I can't say that this speaks for all women, but I think there's some sort of general truth that you think of, you know, single woman, you know, around 20 years old or young 20s and not married. It sort of seems like what becomes all-consuming is, I need a husband, I need to get married, and then I have kids, and, and this and that. And there's a sense of desiring to find fulfillment in sort of every way of life in a husband. And the reality is that's not a healthy mindset. It's wonderful to have a husband. It's wonderful to have a spouse. But really that desire should fundamentally be Lord, right, that's where true fulfillment is going to be found. And so I'd say this sort of this sinful, inordinate desire for a spouse, that it goes too far. There's an appropriate desire for a spouse, but it can also go too far. But even if you don't take it to that extent, even just generally what's being said here is you'll have a desire for your husband and he will rule over you. And here it's not in the sense of, well, should we interpret this to mean before the fall if we're speaking sort of authoritative gender roles, well, there, there was no authoritative role. They were equal in authority. I wouldn't at all interpret it that way. It seems quite clear that before the fall, there, were still, there was still a hierarchy in the structure and that the man had the position of authority within the marriage. But I'd say here, this sort of a connotation in which this is being said, that he will rule over you is in the sense of it's not going to be this, at all times, this wonderful, loving authority that a husband should rightfully have within the marriage where he's the authority, but it's, it's, he exercises that with great love for his spouse and desiring to care for her and be a blessing to her and so forth and so on. Instead, at times, it's going to be um, a little bit of, of an authoritarian rule, and he may have his own interests at heart rather than his spouse's. He may be abusive at times. It isn't always going to be this wonderful marriage relationship that God intended for it to be. And so I'd say that's sort of the connotation of he will rule over you. It's not just he'll rule over you, but sort of what's being said is he'll rule over you and it won't always be this wonderful loving rule. So you'll, you woman will have this desire, this strong desire for your husband, but it's not going to be all that you thought it might be. And he won't always rule over you, you well. And that will be part of the consequence of this decision to disobey God and to eat that fruit, of course. But so now moving on, it's Adam's turn. So verse 17 here, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Right? To put it simply, basically for man, right, there was work before the fall. It wasn't like, oh, work is intrinsically bad and terrible and awful. Right? Work is a wonderful, good thing, and God ordained. Uh, it's a good thing. It, it existed before the fall. They were still to tend the garden and to guard the garden. This was part of the role. But now it's corrupted, right? Now it's not going to always be this wonderful thing to work, but it will be laborious and toilsome and difficult and hard. Uh, and that doesn't just go for tending crops. That's certainly what's specifically spoken of here, but that can go for all work, period, end of story. That, that work isn't now always going to be perfect, but it's corrupted and it will often involve great labor and toil. Uh, and so that's the consequence for man, or part of it. And then we get sort of, uh, in a sense, what's really the greatest consequence of it all, the greatest fall, the greatest punishment, and it's not really just for man, but it happens to be specifically stated for man, but you can incorporate all of mankind, men and women, and in fact, it also falls upon the whole of creation, and it's sort of how this closes, right? It says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Basically, for man, you're going to die, but it's not just for Adam, it's for Eve, and in fact, it falls upon uh, the whole of the created order that death is part of this punishment, part of the consequence. Uh, it was certainly stated up front that was going to be one of the consequences, right? When God said, don't eat this fruit of this tree, if you do, you're going to die. And it's certainly physical death, but that's not chief among sort of the punishment. But it, it's not just the physical death, but it's the spiritual death of the separation between man and God. And not only that, but ultimately eternal death as well. Eternal death, eternal punishment. This is the consequence. This is the punishment for sin. But then going on, verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve. Uh, and Eve means life. So Adam named his wife Eve life because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And that's a verse there that we could probably read over and sort of not make much of. And so, oh, you know, God's just sort of being a little bit gracious here, right? You know, they need some clothing, right? So what's God going to do? Well, he makes some garments of skin for Adam and, and for Eve and, and clothes them. And isn't that nice that even though they've sinned, he's still gracious and does this for them. But I'd say a lot more is going on here. First of all, we have to realize... Um, Animals just don't give up their skin willingly. Like, oh, let me shed my skin. You take it, make some clothing. It involved death. It involved the death of, of an animal. We're not told specifically which one, but some sort of animal gave its life for Adam and Eve here to be clothed. And this is where I want to come back to sort of that whole nakedness thing, right? Again, it's not that this is really about physical nakedness and, uh, and so forth, but it's pointing to a deeper reality. Yes, there is sort of the superficial nakedness. There's a sense of shame and this feeling of, I've got to cover it up. But that's, God has ordained that to point to a deeper reality of this spiritual nakedness. I'm sinful. I'm spiritually naked. My sin is sort of exposed for all to see. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be covered. And what God is saying here is, I will cover, not just your physical body, that's, that's just the symbol here, but pointing deeper, I will cover your spiritual nakedness, right? I will cover your sin. I will deal with that sin problem once and for all. And what will it entail? It will entail death. It will be through blood, right? This animal had to die for this to happen. And ultimately, we know, of course, Christ will have to die to make atonement for sin so that our sin problem can be dealt with, so that our sin can be covered over, atoned for, dealt with, paid for, done away with. And so that's what's being spoken of here. Again, we sort of see uh, sort of in 
just a little snippet here that we might easily read over and not really notice, we see, in a sense, really the gospel being proclaimed all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So going on, verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. Again, here we see the plural. We talked about it a little bit last week when we were looking at the creation account. Could be a plural of majesty, sort of a royal plural. Um, could be pointing to the Trinity, certainly, the three persons of the Trinity. That could be the, the intent of the plural. Could be God sort of speaking amongst his heavenly court of angels as well. Could be, in a sense, all three. Could be any of those. But, but we do note here that he uses the plural. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Again, affirming that. We talked about that before. That is the result, right? They do come to know good and evil, just sort of in the negative way, in the bad way of actually disobeying God. But... Right? Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So I, said, I sort of want to recap and say, you know, what do we see in this passage, right? Of course, we see a hugely important story that sort of has great implications for mankind, right? Adam sinned, Eve sinned, they disobeyed the Lord. And of course, the reality is that we have a sharing in their sin, right? They sinned, and as a result, what do they get? Well, a sinful nature, right? As a result of their disobedience, Adam now has a sinful nature that gets passed on generation after generation after generation. We share in that, and because of that sinful nature, we rebel against and we justly deserve punishment for it, just as Adam deserved punishment for it, just as Eve deserves punishment for it. And fundamentally, greatest of all, the consequence is death. Again, not just physically so, but spiritual death, separation from God, eternal death. And this is what we rightfully deserve. And this is what's so significant about this passage because of the implications of it for mankind. But we see in this passage not just sort of the negative side, sort of the bad news of things of, man, we're under judgment, and, you know, is that it? End of story, we're under judgment, and no hope. Uh, that's all. That's, that's just how it ends. But of course, we know it's not how it ends. And we even see these little glimpses of hope in this passage, in this chapter of it's not over. There is hope, right? Ultimately, this sin problem will be dealt with. And, of course, we know that's in Christ. He came. He took our place, right? God has to punish someone for sin. He's not just going to sweeping under the rug, no problem, no biggie, I just won't address it. No, he, he is just, he is righteous, he's holy, he's going to punish sin, but he says, I'll, I'll, I'll punish my son for your sin, for your rebellion, right? He'll take your place, your sin, your punishment, so that you don't have to, and ultimately, if you just trust in me, true saving faith, repentance and faith, well, then you have life, you're forgiven, you're restored, right, to God, you have eternal life in him, and so we see this glimpses of this even already in this passage. And so that's really what this passage is all about, that we've sinned, we've rebelled, we deserve judgment, but there is hope, right? Our sin problem will be dealt with based on the time frame of Genesis 3, but we know it's already been done from our perspective. We're after Christ, of course. He's already come. He's already dealt with our sin problem, and we just need to turn toward him in repentance and faith, and we're forgiven. We're redeemed. We're rescued from our sin problem right? We're rescued from it, and we have in store for us everlasting life. Dwell with God, experience fellowship with Him, see Him face to face forever and ever and ever in eternity. And if we think of sort of last week in the Garden of Eden, we will all ultimately be restored to that perfect state, and we will have a share in that perfection, in that perfect new created order, and that's what's in store for us. 
And so thinking of sort of the, the so what, what's our application, what's our challenge, where do we go from here, I'd say first of all, the first step is, is believe it, right? Believe that this is all true, that Adam and Eve really sinned, that we sort of share in that sin, that we have a sinful nature, that we've rebelled against God as well, that we deserve judgment, but that there is hope, right? That there is hope that Christ did come, that he was that offspring of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent, right? And dealt with our sin problem, that he is the one who provides a sort of covering or clothing for our spiritual nakedness, our sin problem, that he has covered that over, dealt with that problem once and for all. And if we just turn toward him in repentance and faith, then we're forgiven. So believe it. And maybe you're one who hasn't yet taken that step. You're just sort of on the fence. I don't know. Do I really believe? Do I not? Am I ready to give my life to the Lord? For you, the application is simple. Just do it. Just believe. Finally, come to that place of repenting, trusting in Christ, and be forgiven and receive everlasting life. But maybe for most of us, we'd say, we've done that. That's great. Um, and what about for us? What's a specific application or challenge for us? And I'd say, really, it's this. I think often we sort of make light of sin in our lives. And I want us to sort of read this story and recognize, really, in a sense, the great tragedy and horror of what took place, that man disobeyed God. And not sort of to make light of it, of no big deal, Jesus deals with that problem, we're okay, we're good, but to recognize this is a great, ugly, horrible thing that took place. Man rebelling against God, having a true appreciation of that, not just of what Adam did, but recognizing we're no better, right? We participate in that sin as well, all too often happily so, and to recognize just sort of the ugliness and the wretchedness of sin and really appreciate that, not sort of make light of it, but really grasp just how bad it is, just how wretched we are. And that's sort of the reality, and that's what Scripture teaches, and really mourn over the sin in our lives, mourn over our sin, all the ways in which we've disobeyed God, but then recognize, again, it's not just that's it, end of story, but, but then just as much as we appreciate, in a sense, have an appreciation for the ugliness of sin in our lives, the more we appreciate that, the greater we will have an appreciation for the grace of God, that He came and rescued us, understanding just how wicked and, and wretched we are, that even in spite of that, He he rescued us from our sin. He loves us so much that he did that for us, for lowly, sinful, ugly, wretched us. And that should just blow our minds. And so even as we mourn our sin, I want us all the more so to rejoice in Christ and celebrate him and rejoice and celebrate what he has done for us, that he came. Even though we were enemies of God, steeped in sin, he came for us to rescue us and just be blown away by that fact and just celebrate it. So that's what I want for us, is just to take the time to mourn over our sin, to really have an appreciation for just how wicked and vile our sin is, and then at the same time, an even greater appreciation for Christ and what he has done for us, and just rejoice in that and celebrate that to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we're sorry for our sin. We mourn the actions of Adam and Eve, but we're no better. We share in their sin. We have a sinful nature. We live that out day after day after day, and we rightfully deserve judgment. And Lord, may we have a sense of just how awful and wicked that is. All too often, we sort of make light of sin. We don't really grasp the fullness of just how awful and terrible it is. But may we have a true understanding of it, 
mourn greatly, but then also recognize that that's not all, but that you have loved us, even in spite of the filthy creatures that we are, you've loved us wondrously so, gloriously so. May we have a wondrous appreciation for you and your love and the grace that you've shown us, the love that sent you to this earth, to a cross, bearing our sin, our punishment, the wrath of God, that we might be set free from our bondage, that we might be forgiven, restored to you, and have everlasting life. May we be amazed by that. May we have a full appreciation of it and just rejoice in it and celebrate it and just pour forth worship and praise to you, Lord Jesus, our God, our Savior. And Lord, for anyone here who hasn't yet trusted in you, I pray that you just work in his or her heart Pray that they would understand the truth of this passage, the truth of our sin, but also the truth that's proclaimed in little tidbits and verses in this passage, that our sin isn't the end of the story, but that you came and rescued us from it, and that you offer forgiveness and salvation and life everlasting. And Lord, for anyone who hasn't come to that place, I pray that you just work in, in that person's heart and lead them to true faith in you and into your kingdom for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.